Over the past six weeks, we've shared and discussed our core values as a community, a community which is still very much in its infancy. As, as Jackson said, we're, we're week seven of our, our formal gatherings as found. And so we've talked about our aspiration, how it is that we'll be known by our love. We've talked about what it might mean for us to be a, a people of relationship. We've talked about what it might mean to be a people of good news and, and to love without reason. We've talked about what it might mean for us to be a community who make room, who make room for each other, who make room for faith and doubt, for certainty and uncertainty, to join God in the renewal of all things. And last week, we talked about what it might mean to be creators and contributors of culture. And so today, I'm just going to touch on the last of our core values, which is we are for the common good. And so we've just heard Mina and Nathan read out of Deuteronomy chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 5. And what these passages express is an understanding of God as impartial, unbiased, just, merciful, sending rain on the just and the unjust alike, ensuring that the poor and the marginalized and the foreigners receive justice and food and clothing, that the other, the, the people that we call them, the them rather than us, are embraced and loved and cared for. And, and what this speaks to is the common good. The, the best and the simplest definition of the common good that I've come across and that I'll share with you is the most good for all people, the most good for all people, the just and the unjust, the, the people we like and the people we don't like, the, our friends, our family, our neighbours, and I'll let you decide who you don't like and like in that group, our, our communities, our, our enemies, all of them. And so the most good for all people, the common good, can only really be understood in the context of community. It can only really be understood in the context of the other. What is good for me may not be good for you especially if what is good for me comes at the expense or the exploitation of what is good for you. Uh, the most obvious examples of this are, are sweatshops, are, are slavery, are, um, wages that are below a, a minimum standard of living, deliberately pitting cultural groups and classes against each other, banning Muslims from migrating to Australia. There's an example. The less obvious examples of this are power structures and uh, often structures and systems that we take for granted, but are actually about the betterment of one group over another. And so a failure to effectively reconcile with our first peoples, with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, is in many ways an example of what might be good for me may not be good for you. Wage inequity between men and women uh, relationship dynamics where one partner is constantly and consistently overruling and undervaluing the other simply because of their gender or simply because they have a, a perceived uh, lack of ability or weakness. So the common good proposes systems and structures and approaches that benefit all, not just me, not just you, not just some people, not just even most people, but all people. And the common good is, is framed and, and it touched on and expanded and explored throughout Scripture. But for me, 
other than the two verses that we've just heard, two of the most pivotal texts in relation to the common good are the parable of the Good Samaritan in the Gospel of Luke, which um, Jackson explored and shared on and talked through last week. And the other one, which I want to share with you tonight, comes out of the book of Jeremiah in chapter 29. Now, if you've been in and around church circles, and I know that some of you haven't, but you still may have kind of heard this before, you'd probably know of or have heard of Jeremiah 29.11. It's probably on a fridge magnet in someone's house, or it's on the back of their toilet door, or something. Jeremiah 29.11, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. It's a lovely verse. And it makes sense, don't you think, that it's on a fridge magnet? Because it can be comforting when you're on the toilet or... Sorry, sorry, don't even... I'll move on. In isolation, though, I've got nothing wrong with that verse. In isolation, though, we can read that verse as being all about us as individuals, all about me. Oh, isn't it great? The Lord has plans for me, um, plans to give me hope and, and give me a future, as I said, I've got nothing against the verse. I'm not suggesting that that is untrue, but, but I actually want to read that fridge magnet to you in context because it's part of a letter that Jeremiah, uh, a significant prophet in the Jewish and in the Christian tradition who was around in about 600 BC, it's in a letter that he sends from Jerusalem to the Israelite elders and the remnant of Israel. And essentially what's happened, just to give you a little bit of quick background, is that the Babylonians have ransacked Jerusalem. They've, they've burnt down the temple. The Babylonians have left just a small handful of Israelites uh, in Jerusalem to look after the land, to tend the farms, to, to kind of keep things going. And the prophet Jeremiah is amongst this small group still in Jerusalem. Others ha have fled. They've They've, uh, some have tried to flee back to Egypt where the Israelites escaped some 800 years earlier. But the majority of them, approximately 50,000 Israelites, have been captured and they've been taken on an 1,100-kilometer journey. They didn't have Tiger Air back then, so they've walked 1,100 kilometers. It would have taken them about four to six months. And so they've gone on this journey... And Jeremiah has actually urged them to go. He, he's basically said, don't fight. Go peacefully. Go peacefully and it will go well with you. And so here they are, 50,000 or so Israelites. They're a broken people. They've been captured. They've, they've walked 1,100 kilometers to the land of their captors. They're forced to serve a new king in uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And they're prisoners and they're exiles and they're foreigners in a foreign land. And so Jeremiah sends them a letter. And it starts like this. It says this. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses. Settle down. Plant gardens. Eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in numbers there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years, that's important, just hold on to that. 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you 
and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. And here comes the fridge magnet. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. Now that wouldn't fit on a fridge magnet, I get that, which is part of the reason that they take a bit. But I think when you kind of digest what is being said there, that it puts the fridge magnet in a different light. 70 years fridge magnet doesn't say anything about 70 years. The fridge magnet doesn't say anything about it spanning a lifetime, doesn't mention anything about exile, doesn't mention anything about living as foreigners. The fridge magnet's been holding out on us people. What it has failed to tell us, what it has failed to tell you is that it actually sits within and it actually speaks to something far bigger, something far more amazing, and something truly significant. For the people who Jeremiah's letter was addressed to, what it actually speaks to is a completely new way of living. A way of living that was foreign to them. This, this was different from being enslaved in Egypt many hundreds of years earlier. Life in Egypt for the Israelites had been this multi-generational process of completely breaking down an entire race, race of people, dehumanizing them, oppressing them, and to the point that they came to not even knowing how to be anything other than less than human. And so when they flee Egypt, they actually go through a process in the desert of learning how to become human again. And so their exile to Babylon could have been seen the same way. They could have returned to a time of living and a time of thinking as slaves as they did in Egypt, just, just barely tolerating their situation, just waiting and waiting until somehow at the right time, at the right moment, they were freed, they were emancipated, waiting for their pie in the sky, so to speak. But, but this was not Jeremiah's instruction, and these would have been such strange words, strange words that they were reading and hearing. What he was talking about was a process of unlearning and relearning. He was saying, don't live, don't live like what you know of living in exile, what your ancestors knew of living in exile. Instead, become part of the community that you're going to embed yourselves and not only that increase don't decrease and not only that bless them don't curse them prosper them don't diminish them or undermine them and pray for them desire and seek God's blessing and prosperity for their lives there's there's nothing in there about trying to get the Babylonians to live a completely different life there's nothing in there about them changing their ways it's simply that they're to make the lives of the Babylonians better so Jeremiah was saying unlearn unlearn what you think you know of the Babylonians unlearn what the how it is that you think that you should treat them do every single thing in your power in your capacity to ensure that they prosper because if you if they prosper you will prosper and and we don't know necessarily how the uh, the sorry the israelites responded to this letter but you can kind of imagine this kind of possible thought process of but jeremiah 
they're Babylonians. They're Babylonians. They, they ransacked our city. They, they carted us off more than 1,100 kilometers from our homes and our lives. And, and they worship different gods. And, and they have questionable lifestyles. And shouldn't we just bide our time? Shouldn't we just slowly erode their power? Shouldn't we just kind of wait until the time is right and strike? Shouldn't we tear down the city You're telling us to make their lives even better. These people are our enemies. Jeremiah's direction to them would have been almost confounding. This was a challenging direction and a challenging time. And you know, we too live in challenging times. We live in times of climate change and we live in times of millions upon millions of people fleeing war and violence and torture and trauma millions of people living in makeshift camps on on the borders of nations people who are stateless people who are who are homeless we live in a nation with an aging population in which people are facing the prospect of having to work until they're older and older we we live in a nation with one of tragically, one of the highest rates of suicide in the world. We live in a nation with significant issues of domestic violence and growing industries and shrinking industries and rapid population growth in some centres and rapid uh, population and economic decline in other areas. And so what happens is that when we're faced broadly as people with stress, when we're faced with uncertainty, we've got to blame someone. You've got to blame something. You've got to find a reason for why life is so challenging and uncertain and difficult. And often that blame is directed at the other, at the visible but often kind of broadly defined minority. Not me, not us, but them, those, those people. And so in the media, in politics, on Facebook and Twitter, if you dare venture on there, we... We are witnessing an angry and a divisive debate around immigration and and around multiculturalism and there's loud and amplified voices talking about nationalism and and saying we've got to look after our own, we've got to look after our own backyard and and they're not only talking about the exclusion of everyone else but they're actually talking about the detriment of everyone else and that increasingly creates an us and a them which in turn actually just creates vastly more problems and actually undermines our collective future. And so what is missing, I believe, is an understanding of the common good. What, what is missing is a richer theology of the Imago Dei, which is really just a fancy Latin way of saying the image of God. This understanding that, that everyone is created in the image of God, the, the Imago Dei, and somehow God or people's version of God has, has become a figure in these debates and God is being used as a justification for exclusion and a justification for violence and a justification for war. But I wonder and I would suggest that this is a distortion, that it's a distortion of the Imago Dei because it, it completely contradicts an understanding of an impartial, just merciful, forgiving, and loving God. And so perhaps, if that's the case, then people are worshipping an image of themselves. People are making God 
into their own image. And I wonder too, in my own behaviour and in my own thinking and in the way that I conduct my life at times, whether I am guilty of this behaviour. Do I manipulate, do I create an image of God for my own purposes and my own fame and at the expense of other people, at the expense of their humanity, at the expense and the detriment uh, of the, the common good? And so the most good for all people actually requires us to think differently about who we are and why it is that we exist in community. And I, I think that our definitions of community, especially in church circles, can be quite limited. Our understanding of the Imago Dei can be limited, and, and this is another fancy word, our, our ecclesiology can be quite limited. It's a word that, that ecclesiology just means the study of, of the body, of the church, of, of church community, of the church gathering. It, it comes from the word ecclesia, which is um, an assembly of people or an assembly of citizens. And I think that we have often a limited understanding of the Imago Dei and of ecclesiology. And so my challenge to myself especially over the last period of time, especially as we've been kind of thinking about and conceiving and talking about uh, this community, has been to develop and to grow a, a richer ecclesiology, a, a richer understanding of the Imago Dei, one that, that recognises that my people are also the least of these. My people are also the homeless. My people are the poor. My people are the oppressed. My people are the martyrs in Iraq. My people are the people fleeing violence. My people are those that are marching against violence. My people are detained in camps on Manus Island. My people, they are my people as much as the people in my friendship circles and the people who congregate in churches each Sunday. And, and so I just have this burning sense that I need to do more. I need to reach out, I need to support, I need to pray for them, whoever it is that we call them, more and more. And so I'm, I'm trying to come to this place where I understand what it means that they are us. They are us. I, I want to come to a place where if, if I'm to live in the context and in the dichotomy of them and us at all, that I do so in the same way that Jeremiah entreated the Israelites to live with the Babylonians, to not only live amidst them, to not only increase for my own purposes, but to increase in such a way that it blesses and that it prospers and that it grows the people and the cities that I live amongst and in. Annie Lilla Watson, an amazing Aboriginal elder, said this, If you have come here to help me, you are wasting our time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. We need a new narrative. We, we need a counter-narrative. Counter means uh, to move in the opposite direction or to act in advance of. And what we're seeing in public discourse at the moment is, is something akin to fighting fire with fire, which is leading actually to an amplification of the really angry, noisy voices, an amplification of fear and an amplification of uncertainty rather than actually kind of dissipating it. And so I think that counter-narrative looks more like 
fighting fire with water. And so when someone spouts fear, we need to share courage. When someone spouts hate, we need to respond with love. When someone advocates division and, ex- and exclusion, then we need to promote inclusion. When someone shares stories of terror, we need to communicate good news. When, when someone makes ignorant statements simply through a lack of understanding and a lack of experience, then we need to build relationships. It's a different way of thinking. It's a different way of living. And I think it often requires a process of unlearning and relearning because if we're honest, and if I'm honest, we, we all hold bias. We all have prejudices and, and various concepts or various positions of privilege. And sometimes, if I'm honest, I see myself as better than other people or I see myself as more deserving or sometimes I just see myself as less bad. I'm less bad than them. But can I suggest that when we are for the common good, that we are that counter-narrative, that we are a people and a community and a body that is fighting fire with water, that is presenting an alternative way of responding and living and being. I actually believe that this is Jesus' radical call of living for our church, for our community and our lives, for the sake of the most good for all people. May it be so. May it be so. Two questions we're going to discuss this evening. Firstly, are there ideas, are there attitudes, are there ways of thinking about and responding to people that we need to unlearn and relearn? What are they? Let's talk about it. And secondly, what does Auntie Lilla's quote mean to us and how could that influence our way of life and our way of living?